The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Thursday, April 11th, 2019, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hi. I know what you want me to talk about. The Israeli election. You suggest it. I can ask it. So Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party got as many seats as the centrist party named Blue and White, as opposed to Likud, whose logo is Blue and White. The reason that Bibi is back, baby, is that he is aligned with some quite far-right parties. They will deliver him his coalition, including the ultra-Orthodox parties. Think about the nature of orthodoxy, just the phrase and the concept of orthodoxy. And then think about how orthodox you would have to be to require the use of the description ultra-Orthodox. Let's play this game. I will list the name of the Israeli party and the English translation. And just by the name, you tell me if they're a right-wing party, a centrist party, or a left-wing party. Here we go. So, uh, some of them, by the way, I'm not going to play. Shas, Hal'al, these are acronyms. Here we go. Hadash, it means new. Left, right, or center. They're the commies. They're very left. Zehut, it means identity. You would think they'd be a right-wing party, and they are, but they're also pro-marijuana. They're sometimes described as libertarian. I've seen their, I've seen their criminal... Uh, I've seen their criminal agenda. It doesn't seem so libertarian. They just like smoke pot. Then you have Meretz. It means vigor. Left, right, or center. Let me put you in this mindset. Kennedy slash Quimby. Vigor. Vigor. Yes. That is a left-wing social democratic green party. And then you have Hatuna. I'm not going to make the Makata joke, but it means the movement. It is Zippy Livni's party. They're, you know, left, uh, former labor party. Cabinet Minister Zippy Livni. And then you have Escher, which means bridge. Of course, that's a centrist party. And then Kaluna, all of us, also a centrist party. I, th- I just think their branding is very on point. Only one maybe tripped me up. I'll now say what I'm supposed to say about Israel so everyone around here likes me. And then I'll say what I, what I really think. So what I'm supposed to say is that Netanyahu is a cynic and a bully and a trickster. And he, of course, makes common cause with some of the worst thugs like Bolsonaro from Brazil and this guy from the United States. And if I were an Israeli, I do mean this, it would bother me and the wall would bother me. But it would bother me in the way that a person is bothered as they're sitting in an outdoor cafe, not having to worry that every moped barreling down the street is laden with explosives. So most Americans don't care at all about international relations, but the, one that do, the ones that do are very passionate, either very pro-Israel or having very quite pro-Palestinian sympathies. But I do think if the vast majority of Americans or the vast majority of the citizens of any f- highly functional country were in the situation that the Israelis were, they would vote exactly as the Israelis do. And they might regrettably say, look, we, we, we know we're supporting this guy and this guy probably goes too far in oppressing the danger. But you know what? He oppresses the danger. I, I really think like 80 or 90% of the people in the world would back that and take that. Acknowledge it's a tough dynamic, but realize the deal goes like this. The world might hate you, but you don't get bombed. They like the don't get bombed part and worry about the world might hate you somewhere in the back of their mind. 
I actually don't think that that is a concept too foreign from the calculations that many Americans have made over the years at the ballot box. On the show today, I got a birdie spiel. He's a millionaire. But first, a masterful piece of nonfiction about a notorious murder in Northern Ireland. Depending on your predilections, think of it as a murder story with the backdrop of war, peace, and international affairs. Or you could think of it as the story of a societal clash as told with the through line of a murder. Either way, it's gripping. Say Nothing, a true story of murder and memory in Northern Ireland is the book. Patrick Radden-Keefe is here to discuss it. In 1972, a woman named Jean McConville was dragged out of her home by eight, ten, we're unsure how many men and women who broke into the Belfast apartment to take her away. Her oldest son, actually her oldest son, living at home, was said, take your mother outside. He did, and then a gun was pointed in his ribs and said, now go away. Jean McConville was never seen again. It later became known that she was the victim of an IRA murder and who exactly authorized the murder is something of huge international intrigue. It's the sort of story that every person in Ireland knows about today and what it says about the country and the times then and the times now is still profound. The name of the book that really solves this case is called Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland. It's written by Patrick Radden Keefe. He's here. Hello. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Did you know about it? I didn't. Um, and it's funny. I mean, because your name is Patrick Radden Keefe. Yeah, I'm trying exactly. to ascertain how Irish right, you are. Right, right, right. I'm less Irish than the name would lead you to believe. I mean, my my father's family came over from Ireland in the 19th century, but I grew up in Boston in a fairly Irish American area. I had never heard the name Gene McConville, and weirdly enough, I, I'm a staff writer at the New Yorker. That's my day job, and I came to this. In the context of my job, it was just a, a story. The woman, this woman, Dolores Price, who was an IRA member, who was involved in that disappearance of that woman, died in 2013. Yeah. I read about her and just seemed like there was a an wild o- There story. was an obit in the Times. There's an obituary in the Times. It turns out she's the ex-wife of Stephen Ray. Stephen Ray, the guy from the The actor, yeah. and there's a nice picture of her in the Times looking really innocent next to her sister, Marianne. You're like, oh, how did these two Irish school lasses become... IRA operatives. Absolutely. That's the question. Yeah. Yeah. And that was um that was sort of what set me off on this. And uh so I wrote a big piece for the New Yorker that came out in twenty fifteen. Um but yeah, you would think uh it's funny my British publisher said <laughs> at a certain point it was like, you gotta talk about your name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was just, you know, she said yeah. you're gonna have to address it because if you don't, people will wonder. Well, I was wondering if uh it gave you any inroads or put up any roadblocks as you were reporting this in any way. You know, it's funny. I thought that it would, but it didn't. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason for that is there's something like 30 million Irish Americans, way more Irish Americans than there are people in Ireland. Yeah. But it's like four and a half million in yeah. Ireland. So, and so and many of them are not even ethnically Irish. Right. So, yeah. they, so you, you know, if you go to Boston or Chicago or the Bronx, you have these Irish Americans who feel this deep affinity with Ireland. You go to Ireland and they're like, yeah, you guys are American. It's yeah. a different thing. Yeah. Um, so I was really perceived as an outsider. Right. Also, I wouldn't expect that the doors would necessarily be open just because of what we're talking about, which right. is essentially accusing the most powerful people with, with cause, accusing the most powerful people, some of the most powerful people in the country, of being involved in this murder. So let's go through it. And maybe not, I mean, this is where the book starts, and it's a good jumping off point, but give me the background. In 1972, when McConville was abducted, what was going on in Ireland? 
So this was at the beginning of the what's known as the Troubles, which is this three-decade conflict. Um, I mean, just to give you the bare minimum of the history, uh, in the 1920s, you get the partition of Ireland. Yeah, I thought you were going to go back to Cromwell. Yeah, yeah but okay. I could. It's like a funny, it's a joke I made in the end notes of the book. But there, in one of Jerry Adams' memoirs, um, there's like a chronology of events. This is in his personal memoir of his life. And yeah. it starts in like 1100. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we got to go all the way back. But um, so I will take you back only to the 1920s when you get the partition of Ireland after the Irish War of Independence. Um, which basically you have the Republic of Ireland, the country we call Ireland, Ireland, and then in the north, there's Northern Ireland, which is six counties which remain under the dominion of the British. And tensions between Protestant and Catholic uh, populations had sort of sharpened, and then it all kind of explodes in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and you get um, the IRA, which is pushing to get the British out. You get Mm -hmm. loyalist paramilitaries who are loyal to the British crown, uh, the police, and then the British Army comes in ostensibly to restore order, but they end up not really seeming like a neutral referee, but more of an occupying force. And so 1972 is the most violent year of that whole conflict. And it's it's really at the height of that period that Gene McConville disappears. So violent how? Because it is an uprising and there are terrorist tactics, and yet the IRA... Uh, they probably burnish their own myth, but they always say they call ahead and try to uh, try to only bomb government or military facilities and limit uh, the casualties of innocents, though that doesn't always work. So how bad is the violence? How widespread? What kind of violence are we talking about? Uh, the violence is appalling. And I, I guess I would say there, there are very few heroes in my book. Part of what I wanted to do is not take any of these romanticized um, narratives that have come out of this conflict and go in and, and really kind of call things as I saw them. So it's true the IRA was pushing to get the British out. They adopted a lot of techniques which were pretty brutal, setting bombs in public places, targeting people for execution. It's going out and just, you know, getting in gun battles with soldiers and cops and loyalist paramilitaries on the streets. You had loyalist paramilitaries who have their own execution squads and are going out um, and, you know, engaging in sectarian killings and in many instances killing people who are Catholic just because they're Catholic. Uh, the police who were, again, not really perceived as neutral, but perceived as a kind of Protestant arm of the British state, the mm-hmm. Royal Ulster Constabulary, who dramatically overreact um, in the face of violence. And so in many instances, particularly in those early years when they didn't really know what hit them, they're like hosing heavy or heavy, you know, heavy caliber weapon uh, guns into um, public housing complexes, killing people. Um, and the army comes in and finds that it's fighting an insurgency, even though they never called it a war. Uh, yeah, they call on, it the trouble know, still yeah, to yeah, this exactly. day. Yeah. In, the, uh, in the streets. And so it was a multi-vector, very, very dirty conflict. And, and it was dirty on all sides. And where McConville lives, her husband had died of cancer. Her oldest son is serving time in jail for, I guess, just suspicion of being affiliated with the IRA. Yeah. And her, um, her, her housing complex is just a hotbed of IRA activity. Absolutely. So she's in West Belfast. And she was actually Protestant. She'd been married to a Catholic man. And it was interesting. So, you know, originally they lived in Protestant East Belfast and they get kind of hounded out of there because they're too Catholic for Mm -hmm. East Belfast. They get to West Belfast and they're too Protestant for West Belfast. Her husband dies. She's in this housing complex. She's struggling to take care of these kids. And uh, this gang comes and takes her away. Mm -hmm. And why? I mean, we know now. What they said, yeah. Yeah. So what 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 the IRA has said, and it is their position today, is that Jean McConville was an informant for the British Army, that she was feeding them information about the IRA. Uh, Her children, really 
strenuously resist that and say, how could she have been an informant? She was struggling just to take care of us. Um, I don't come down definitively in the book one way or the other. I, I try not to get out over my skis in terms of what I know, so I sort of lay it all out and let right, you decide right. yourself. And there's also rumors she was even seen helping a wounded British soldier at some point. So this is a story her kids tell, is that yeah. at some point prior to her abduction, uh, there would be these gun battles at night in this housing complex, and one night there was a British soldier who was wounded. She comes out to help him, and the next morning, somebody has scrawled in paint across their door, Brit lover. Right. So we don't know exactly what's true. There are other stories that it was a case of mistaken identity. Right. That's just a story they tell. But she is gone, and the kids are living by themselves for a little while. And yeah. they go on. The BBC finds them. The 15-year-old uh, sister is kind of trying to run the family. They're basically starving, although right. food was hard to come by beforehand. How quickly does this become a story bigger than just one of the many little data, uh, appalling data points in the Troubles? Yeah. Well, it, it was um, briefly after the mother's taken away. So the press discovers that there's this apartment full of children who are living on their own. It's this kind of Lord of the Flies scene. And there's this mystery. What happened to Jean? What happened to their mother? And so that was a newspaper story for a short while, but ultimately it gets overtaken by events. I mean, the pace of crazy things happening in Belfast at that time was such that it gets kind of forgotten about the kids um, heartbreakingly uh, initially, they won't leave the apartment because they say, we got to be here when our mother gets back. Yeah. Um, but they get farmed out to different orphanages. Awful things happen to them in the orphanages. If you've been reading about those stories. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's only really decades later, in fact, 31 years after Jean McConville's disappearance, that there's a guy walking on a beach in the Republic of Ireland, and he sees some bones sticking out of the sand. And that's when her body's found. And it, was it unusual for the IRA to actually bury bodies and try to cover their crimes? Because I thought they were into sending messages. Yeah, so normally they would they would kill people and then leave them out in the street as an example to others, particularly if it's somebody who they suspected of having been an informant. Um, you know, it's interesting. In a place like Mexico, mm-hmm. we don't even know the aggregate number of people who've been disappeared there. You know, we, I couldn't tell you how many thousands of people. Nobody knows the absolute number. Northern Ireland is so small that in the course of the Troubles, we know it's 16 people. You can name them, the people yeah. who were disappeared. So it was a pretty unusual thing for the IRA to do. They often did it if they felt it would be embarrassing or somehow, you know, not look good. Um, and in the case of a you know, killing a widowed mother of 10, you can see how that would be, that would be uh, the case. But it was, it was a policy for a time of the IRA in certain instances to bury someone in a secret grave and maybe start rumors, but, but not in any way confirm that they'd been killed. Though they didn't know where she'd been taken, how long she was alive, was she questioned, was she tortured, where was she buried? Um, there were no breaks in the case, really. Yeah. Um, and then there's this project at Boston College after the piece where they decide, let's create a record of the Troubles. Let's get some of these paramilitaries to come in and do oral histories talking about the things they did during the bad years. And that was the other hook for me with the book is, you know, this isn't just a history story about 1972. It's much more recently people divulging these secrets in this archive. It's really interesting. A lot about that is interesting. So let's go through some of the things. I would understand why you'd want to document history. What maybe would be confusing or you wouldn't expect is that voluntarily so many of the people who committed crimes uh, acted, you know, acted in ways contrary to the law and maybe were grappling with it um, on an ethical level spoke voluntarily. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I was wondering, maybe it's because they're Catholic and went to confession. Maybe yeah, because except, it's a, except there, maybe, were, there were Protestants, there were Protestants yeah, there too. Yeah. Maybe it's because the guilt was weighing on them. Why, why did they want to speak? What did they think they would get out of that? I think there are a bunch of reasons. So one is that a lot of people, like that woman, Dolores Price, who was sort of my way into the book, when the peace process happened, they actually felt really disaffected because mm-hmm. when the troubles end, the British don't leave. Basically, the IRA and Jerry Adams say, okay, we, we will tolerate continued British dominion over Northern Ireland. Yeah, Northern Ireland, if you're following it's Brexit, still, it started the UK. part of the UK, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, not Irish. And the problem for, and on the one hand, that's a huge victory, right? That's something we should all celebrate is that this terrible conflict ends. But for the, for the foot it's soldiers. Like the, one of the greatest accomplishments of the Clinton era that absolutely. you know we forget even happened. Yeah, yeah. it was amazing. And... But for the foot soldiers who were involved in the conflict, there was this really fascinating thing that happened in this story that very seldom gets told when we look at this history, which is for somebody like Dolores Price, she says, wait a second, you know, I set bombs in London, huge car bombs that went off. I targeted people for execution. I went on hunger strike. I did all these things because our collective understanding was we were going to drive the British out of Ireland once and for all. I didn't do it for a compromise. I didn't do it for a compromise. Yeah. And if, if I knew that we were going to get a negotiated political settlement, yeah. I wouldn't have done these things. So, so they then feel like, how do I make sense of the ethics of these things that I did when I was, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old? This idea of um, not just PTSD, but, you know, what they call moral injury um, and, and American veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. And this idea that, you know, trauma isn't just felt by the victims, right? Trauma is felt by the perpetrators of things. But the other thing I was going to say, though, is the other reason they, they unburdened themselves in this oral history is they were told by Boston College, uh, we're going to keep this secret. It's going to be sealed until you die. Mm-hmm. So it's like a time capsule. Right. And it turns out that was a promise that BC couldn't really legally make. When they started the archive, the idea was, okay, all we want to do is get the truth of what happened and there will yeah. be no criminal accountability. Right. And now we're in the opposite situation in which prosecutors have this and they can bring charges on the yeah. basis of what they've got in these recordings. But scholars and writers, people like me, are never going to get it. That's why it's truth and reconciliation. Because right, exactly. truth without reconciliation and reconciliation without truth both are lacking. It's true. And the... Um, they reconcile to that. And this, well, but there, I mean, but this is the crazy thing about Northern Ireland, right? Is that there's never been any reconciliation. So right. you, I think for me, I had a sense. Reconciliation. That, Jerry Adams up until like last year is the most, one of the most important political yeah. figures. And to this yeah. day, if he were sitting in this room right now, he would tell us both with a straight face. He was never in the IRA. Right. Right. He was always in their political arm. Right. Yeah. So what, how, what, how does it implicate Jerry Adams? Uh, I mean, I think I, I pretty, I pretty comprehensively substantiate in the book that, that Jerry Adams was, was in the IRA, was the Belfast commander, was the commanding officer for Dolores Price and Brendan Hughes, and gave the orders for a bunch of these war crimes. Gave okay. the order. That's for the important thing that you add, because everyone, I don't know if everyone knows, I don't know what the nature of proof is, yeah. but everything I've ever read about Jerry Adams paints it as either an open secret or an unacknowledged truth that the first bunch of those things you said is was the case. He was running the IRA in Belfast yeah. then. Well, and then you make then you connect the dots. So if the IRA was doing these things and he was in charge, how could he not have known? Totally. But what you do is you really put um 
you tie it all together. Well, I interviewed a bunch of people who took orders from him, right? So, yeah. um, and the the interesting question for me was, most of these people were not psychopaths, right? You had a few on the margins, but most yeah. of these people are actually normal people who mm-hmm. felt a really fierce conviction. Yeah, and then there's the element of the stories you tell yourselves or the yeah. stories you tell yourselves afterwards. I remember in when the speech Jerry Adams gave, he quoted Bobby Sands, the hunger striker who died because of it. The best revenge we will have is the laughter of our children. I have no idea if Bobby Sands ever said that. If he yeah. did, I'm sure the quote was burnished for posterity for all these for all these political purposes that are probably pretty contrary to the actual methods of the IRA or maybe even the well, mindset and I'll give of Bobby you, I'll Sands. Give you an example of that. So I mean Bobby Sands is a good another another thing I was really interested in was the um the, I think what I call in the book is the commodification of Republican mar- martyrdom. Yeah. You know, you get this guy, Brendan Hughes, who was this famous IRA figure, and he ends up kind of falling out with Jerry Adams. He's disillusioned after the peace process. He's living in this little apartment up in this tower. He's an alcoholic. He's haunted by all the things he's done. He's losing his eyesight because it's a kind of lingering um, result of his hunger strike when he was younger. And down on the streets of Belfast, his image as a young man is is painted in graffiti on the walls. He's in these murals. He's this kind of romantic figure. And he's up there on welfare, yeah. looking down, embittered, feeling like he's upstaged by his own kind of younger self. And to that point, Bobby Sands' family at a certain point went to Jerry Adams and Sinn Féin and said, please stop using the image and name of Bobby in order to raise money for your cause now. Like, we would just prefer that you not turn him into a bumper sticker. Yeah, well, that's too inconvenient for Jerry Adams. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I just have to think that this seems so tied up to Catholicism and martyrdom and the iconography of the saints versus the reality. It's true, and that's the, um, yeah, I mean, one of the first lines in the book is about Dolores Price when she was a little girl, and I said her favorite saints were martyrs. Yeah. The book is called Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland, it's written by Patrick Radden Keefe. I am a sucker for, I'm a bit of a galephile. I also like uh, a good murder tale as much as the next guy. And I'm fascinated by Irish politics. And this just has everything. It's so well done. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. And now the spiel. Bernie Sanders did a totally rational thing that got a lot of blowback. And to my mind, a quite loopy thing that was taken pretty seriously. So let's lead with the one where Bernie was more or less faultless, but was treated like he did something wrong. Bernie Sanders admitted that he has made a million dollars. He is a millionaire because we are thawed out of ice as an English spy with bad teeth. We are absolutely gobsmacked that this is an obscene amount of money, a million dollars. In one of the great leads in journalism history, Vox began a story with these words. Bernie Sanders might decry them both, but millionaires and billionaires are really not the same thing. Really? You're telling me two different numbers are different? You're telling me two numbers where one is a thousand times the other are different from each other? And on this week's episode of The Weeds, is six afraid of seven? Or are they both the same deep down? Then there was this Think Progress video, Think Progress, which constantly seems to betray both of its foundational terms. They put together this scare video. So when Bernie ran in 2016, you remember the rhetoric. When millionaires and billionaires of millionaires and billionaires 
Millionaires and billionaires. Millionaires and billionaires. Millionaires. But then they show Bernie becoming a millionaire because of his book deal, and they quote him as saying this. This is a budget of the billionaire class, by the billionaire class, and for the billionaire class. More billionaires in his administration. Billionaires. Billionaires and the wealthiest people. Billionaires and the wealthy. A handful of billionaires and other billionaires. billionaires. Here's the thing. I did a search. Bernie has said millionaires and billionaires dozens and dozens of times since he himself became a millionaire. I guess Think Progress didn't make a claim that they had any data backing up their clips, but uh, they didn't have any data backing up their clips. Now on to the more wackadoo proposal. Bernie Sanders proposed Medicare for all, as you knew he would, because that is his plank. And he defined it as a system with no private health insurance, where the government would provide medical, dental, vision, I assume some rolfing and shiatsu. That last part, by the way, is not outrageous. Lots of countries have state-sponsored health care and they provide massage. It's quite a point of pride in the German system. This would be the most generous health care system, oh, not just of any state, it would be literally the most generous healthcare system in the world, what Bernie is proposing. We go from us in Papua New Guinea, no healthcare, to the most generous in the world without trying out in a laboratory of democracy or even Scandinavia. It is untried, untested, and really, really expensive. It is also going to cause a great upheaval, and right now it is unpopular. Kaiser polled, would you favor Medicare for all if it meant you'd have to pay more taxes? 37% yes, 60% no. You can't, you can't right, put taxes in a question. We all know that. People don't like taxes. All right, what about when they polled, would you favor Medicare for all if it meant eliminating private healthcare companies? 37% yes, 58% no. Now, Bernie, I've heard him talk about this. He can explain, he gets very mad when you point this out. and Or, I don't know, maybe he gets like very chill. He gets Bernie. He's like Bernie always is. He explains why it's not accurate. Think about all the benefits. It's not being explained to people in the proper manner. All the counter arguments. But here's the thing that I worry about. I don't know what Bernie thinks his power of persuasion is. I mean, he didn't win the Democratic nomination last time, so he couldn't even win Democrats to his uh, general proposal. Of course, he's not a Democrat. But I don't know. Does he think he could switch those numbers and make it something like, said a 37% no, 58% yes, that 58% would say yes and 37% would say no? That would be one of the most massive shifts in public opinion as an act of persuasion just when a policy is explained. I've, I've kind of never seen that before, but I guess it could happen. If it does, it still won't be enough because Bernie's plan only will work if like 80 or 90% of Americans back it. This is a constant frustration to me that people propose plans and they're fine just so long as you don't get a significant number of people opposing them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're doable and possible if we had the political will, but so is Sharia law if we had the political will, but saying if we had the political will is saying like, if we all wanted to do this massively disruptive thing, then we'd do this massively disruptive thing, but we don't. Here's a massively disruptive thing we all wanted to do. Fight the Nazis in World War II. And in fact, we didn't at first after Pearl Harbor, we did. It was massively disruptive. You know, build roads and legalize cars. Another massively disruptive thing that we all got on board to do. But I tell you, if we were 58%, Yes for the cars and 37% no, we wouldn't have the highway system. 
It's like libertarianism. Libertarianism also fails really, really poorly. I get very frustrated with the libertarians who say, look, we just need to explain to people it's a system where you sink or swim. And that's fine until people start sinking and they're friends of yours, they're members of your family, they're just some guy you saw on the news, and you're like, oh, that's so sad. They're sinking. I think I'm against this sink and swim system. Once you get too many people sympathetic to the sinkers, you got no system. You need a system that fails well. You need a system, if you're going to have a huge massive upheaval, you need either Americans wanting to change, which polls say they're not, or you need some massive exogenous factor. I mean, Bernie believes he could turn... I don't know, two-thirds of Americans for his health care plan. You know, two-thirds of Americans are for much more massive gun control than we have. Two-thirds of Americans are for DACA. Those things don't pass. There will be winners and losers. Doctors are going to lose and make less money. Drug companies will lose. Lots of people happy with their insurance believe they will lose. I believe they will lose too. How are you not going to have people correctly assessing, I might be a loser under this plan? Obamacare worked in general because people in general were for it. So this is a plan that people aren't against and it's the biggest lift and it's never been done anywhere in the world. Also, it's going to cost a lot. And a lot more than Bernie says it's going to cost. The New York Times today had a bunch of estimates. I'll throw out the one from the Mercatus Center because I can anticipate the complaints. How can you even quote them? They're too right wing. So let's go with Rand, Kenneth Thorpe of Emory, where Daniel and I went to school. The Urban Institute. These are all centrist, very respected. They have good numbers on other things. They all say that Bernie's Medicare for All plan is going to cost either $3.24 trillion, $3.20 trillion, or $3.87 trillion. Of course, Bernie says it's going to cost $2.76 trillion because he relies on this one economist named Gerald Friedman who has this extremely lowball number. Huh, what are the odds of that? That the one guy proposing the plan is also saying it's going to cost half a trillion dollars less than everyone else. The New York Times says in that article, this is the biggest change, biggest government policy in a generation. Generation? No, 80 years. That's like three or four generations since 1939 and Social Security. And in 1939, with Social Security, the experts were pretty much on board. You didn't have to find one outlier expert to say this could work. The experts were writing about the social safety net for years and years and years. And in Europe, there were plenty of social insurance programs. The first social security retirement system was put in place in Germany in 1889. Great Britain had disability benefits and health insurance in 1911. We weren't on the bleeding edge of stopping the bleeding. Look, if you make, if the difference between Bernie's proposal and everyone else's proposal is half a trillion dollars, remember this, the entire budget is $4 trillion. So he's saying, let's almost double the budget Or if you trust people who aren't me, all the experts who aren't me, let's come really quite close to doubling the budget. So here's the other thing you hear about Bernie's plan. Well, you know that Bernie believes it. But what about the four other senators who are not Amy Klobuchar, who have signed on as co-sponsors? Well, they're just doing it as rhetoric. They're just doing it as a negotiating position. I got to tell you, I hate that more than I hate holding the actual position. It's dishonest. It's craven. It's good politics as defined by someone who doesn't understand politics. Remember that line in Mad Men where Don Draper told Peggy when she says sex sells? That's what people who don't understand what we do think that we do. Making a crazy out there proposal that you don't believe in 
to move the needle or the Overton window, I think is crazy bad politics and is not a tactic much used by people who are good at politics. It gives me great pause when I consider that those other candidates have signed on, literally signed on as co-sponsors, Gillibrand, Booker, Harris, and Warren. I don't know what to do with that. I think Bernie believes in his plan. I know that he does. I do have a little respect for that, for championing a bold, in my opinion, bad idea that he doesn't lie too much about. Maybe he doesn't lie at all. He just has some willful disbelief about the costs. So the situation is this. We got, we got in Bernie Sanders, the guy who is by far and away the highest in the polls of all declared candidates. He is by far and away the best funded of all declared candidates. He wants a plan that America seems to really hate, but he believes he could get America to hate it not as much. And he has pulled every other big candidate towards his side. Who knows what the hell Beto's doing? I got nothing. I got nothing on this. I'm just flummoxed. I think it's a crazy idea. And it's, in fact, so crazy to me that I sometimes think, my God, if a non-disastrous Republican were running, I don't know, primaries Trump or something, and this were really the plan of the Democrats, this was the thing they went to the mat for, I would be torn. I would, okay, I don't know. I mean, there's every other policy that I can think of, basically. But this would give me great pause. It does give me great pause. It makes me sick. But not yet on the government's dime. And that's it for today's show. PRBNMA and Daniel Schrader are starting the Irish-Israeli party Sinn Féin Sinn Bet. It means we ourselves, but we were never here. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She notes... If Netanyahu does get convicted by the Israeli prosecutor who's looking into his deeds, then we will have possibly both a BB Khan and a DD Khan. The gist. All right, Bernie, I slagged you off a little. I got a slogan for you. Here you go. You can take this. With my Medicare, you'll get better care than a millionaire. It's good. It's good. It's gold. It's gold, Bernie. Gold. Boom, Peru, Depru, Peru. And thanks for listening.